is straight to the source, your destination for food, views and big ideas. Brought to you by two of the best in the business, Tonya Barr and Lucy Allon. Join them to discover some of Australia's most dynamic food, hospitality and agribusiness leaders. Hello and welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward. Whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture. And we want you to know who they are, their views and their big ideas. We are coming to you today from Camaragal land in North Sydney, New South Wales, and we would like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And we extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, here with us today. We are very excited to uh, have Mark Henry in the studio with us today, the entrepreneur and chief engineer behind Solitechnics, which is an Australian manufacturer of cookware, kitchen tools and knives, which has really taken the world by storm. Welcome, Mark. Welcome to the studio. You've had an extraordinary career and we've we've known each other for, for a while now. You've come from knives, skillets to now living, what, off the grid? Oh yeah, yeah, you could say it's. Uh, well, thanks first for having me. It's been, um, you know, we've both been in the industry a long time, and uh, we've both been circulating around different parts of the industry, and then we catch up every now and then. Back in the days when there used to be um, meetings, gatherings with people in rooms, yeah. But technology is a wonderful thing as well because we get to talk to you. Where you're located up in Queensland at the moment? Yeah, on my farm out in uh, Kinkin in the. Sunshine Coast hinterland. And how long have you been up there? Uh, since 2020. In fact, that's when I moved back to Australia after 15 years away. It just made a lot of sense to get back to the land. And uh, I grew up part of my childhood on hobby farms. This is like a big hobby farm, I guess. We're doing some interesting things with regeneration here. So um, it feels like coming full circle, you know, after living mainly in cities and well, in fact, living in airports, it seemed like most of the time. Because you've travelled the world and with your businesses, you've you've gone from France to the US to Australia. Yeah, yeah. I took uh, Fury Techniques, my knife company, to the USA in 2005. So that's when I left Australia. I was there for seven years, sold it, but then stayed on for a bit, then moved to France for eight years and started Solid Technics from France, an Australian company manufacturing in Australia, run from France. So tell us about Fury, though. How did you, I mean, from an engineering perspective, that was your first business, wasn't it? In fact, my first, yeah, anything to do with commerce, I was still a student at university when I started in 96. And which uni were you at? Queensland University of Technology in the uh, double degree engineering and business program. And it was perfect because I did a metal trade. I was a fitter and machinist. I did four year apprenticeship and then a few years as a tradesman, then went back to university. So the engineering, the theoretical side of engineering was um, magic for me after having seen it all in practice and, you know, operated the machines and worked the metal and, and things like that to go back and get the theory after the practice was a pretty interesting journey. 
And so, you know, I knew what they were talking about. I just needed to learn the mathematics and the physics and the chemistry behind everything I'd already seen, essentially. It wasn't so crazy for me to start a business while I was at university. I made prototypes for the knives. The chefs liked them, so I said, all right, well, let's see. And I knew no, I knew nothing about business or retail or commerce, but it seemed to work, and I just had to learn fast, you know. I had no idea what I was doing. Why knives? What was, what was it that kind of drew you to knives as opposed to any other product that you could have made using metal? Yeah, um, well, since I was a kid, I was interested in knives, and my grandfather used to make knives not because he was a, a hipster with a bun and, you know, they didn't exist. Back in, in those days, he made knives because he knew how to and it was cheaper than buying them. He, he made a lot of things and repaired a lot of things like everyone did back in the day. So anyway, I used to watch him in his workshop and I was fascinated and he taught me a few things. And so when I started my apprenticeship, I made knives. I made some knives as a, as a hobby thing, you know. Did you always have your sights set on the commercial market? Uh, the the chef market, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. where I started because mm-hmm. I, I, knew, I knew nothing about retail and I, had, I actually didn't think it was possible for me to go to retail. Um, but I did understand the chefs. I had some chef friends. I used to be fascinated with what they called the best knives in the world. You know, back in 96, that was the classic European usually German knives, mm-hmm. and um, in my engineering eye, they look like dinosaurs, you know, so that's what got me thinking to really explore a bit deeper and to try to find a knife design that was one piece so it wouldn't fall apart, so it wouldn't trap germs, so it would be way more durable, you know, no rivets, no wood, no plastic, uh, just a one-piece knife made a lot of sense. But then to work on the metallurgy, to get back to something that was uh, easier to sharpen, like the old carbon steels, but with chromium to avoid the corrosion. So it was a fair bit of research and then the cutting edges. And the uh, I got to do that research at university as part of my honours thesis. So a really deep dive into that sort of technology gave us a big advantage, you know, over the regular manufacturers. What was the d- the development time on that? From start to finish, if you if you take into account when you were at uni, on that first that first fury knife, I guess if I only count when I really wanted to make the best knife and I got started, it was really only two years or so, and I had prototypes handmade uh, by a, essentially a, a, a good backyard fabricator who made the prototypes by hand and. Those prototypes, the chefs loved them, so that's when I had to figure out how to make them. So <laughs> that was a pretty wild journey. Then how do you sell them? I didn't know. I started talking to chefs. I didn't know anything. And then um, pretty quickly the public got interested once the chefs started taking them on television and writing about them in their articles and magazines and things, you know. What was the chef's primary um, objective with a good when you say when they say a good knife? Is it obviously the cutting skill that sort of goes without saying, but the balance as well, the how it feels in the hand and the the balance of the knife? Those are the things they they think are important. What they don't realise is going on is a bit more complex than that. What it is, 
there's dynamics involved, not statics. So static handle comfort is very different to what's happening when you're really cutting something. Right. And repetitively, you know, for hours on end or pushing with force. So that's something mechanical engineers understand a bit better, dynamic. So with the Fury range, when you when you built that business up and you decided you wanted to sell it, why did you decide you were ready to sell? Ah, yeah, good question. Now this gets back to what's the meaning of life? What's mm-hmm. most important? You know, why are you doing things? And I did it to develop the world's best knives out of, you know, that desire to innovate and leave a legacy of something important, something that was going to go on for generations. And these things are already in their second generation because the older chefs are getting their apprentices to use them. And some of those apprentices are growing up, so they're probably starting to recommend them as well. You know, leaving a legacy of good design is what motivates me. So we got so big, I took the company to the USA, like I said, in 2005. It got so big that I spent most of my days talking to accountants and lawyers and bankers and HR managers, and it wasn't what I wanted to do in the beginning. But when you get to that size, you know, if you want to keep control, you've got to play at being CEO as well. And that's not so bad in a place like Australia. Try it in the USA. Mm. Um, it's a whole, whole different level of, of commercial brutality you know, people who know me know I'm not motivated by the money. And so they were pretty surprised that I wasn't playing the the commerce game the way they normally saw it. So, yeah, for me, it was all about products. But anyway, I could see there was probably no way out of that except for selling it. Had two young boys at home, babies, and I was barely seeing them. So I said, yeah, I'm going to start again and I'm going to do it completely differently next time on my terms and I'm going to write a black and white manifesto of how I'm going to run the second half of my life. That was the first half. That was my schooling. Now the second half is when I get serious and do things the right way and uh, that's more to do with uh, things not related to commerce. So Spirituality. Yeah, that and family and friends and... and, uh, helping to repair some of the damage that we've been doing, not my company so much because we make good durable products that will go on for a long time, uh, but regeneration in general in industry, uh, manufacturing in Australia, I knew it could be done. Everyone had forgotten how, um, you know, consumer products in particular had all disappeared from the Australian manufacturing scene, but I thought we could do it. So that was my challenge, to come back and manufacture in Australia, manufacture things that I've always wanted to manufacture in a country that uh, people told me it wasn't possible to manufacture in any longer. That's like putting a red flag in front of a ball, though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe that's what motivates me when people tell me it's impossible. It can't be done. <laughs> so where did you start with that? Like, what, what was the starting point? Yeah, no, that's interesting because it took me uh, a few years of sitting down in silence to write this thing and to get the whole picture so clear that it could go into black and white and I would hold myself to it. But that wasn't in Australia, that was in France. You know, I sold 
the food technics business in 2008, hung around for a few years in the USA, then moved to France. I had a contract with Deboyer, the French uh, manufacturer of culinary things, for a couple of years to start a knife business for them. And that's still, uh, that's going really well for them because they've got really nice knives. They didn't know how to do them and I knew how to do them. Um, so we got together and collaborated on that. But anyway, that took two years to finish. And then instead of coming back to Australia, I thought this is perfect. Now I've got the clear time to sit down and write this thing down and get it right next time around. And I knew I wanted to make cookware, but I had to solve the technical problems for that. So while I'm writing this manifesto, I'm working on the technical problems because the chef said to me all these years, hey, you're making a one-piece knife. That's fantastic. Why don't you make us one-piece cookware with no rivets um, in stainless steel and in something like our steel pans, you know, but without rivets and without welds, just one piece. I said it wasn't possible, and that's when I caught my own red flag because it had never been done, except for wrought iron was done with uh, red-hot lumps of metal and a big hammer for 3,000 years. You can actually forge out a one-piece pan if you've got really big arms and a big hammer <laughs> and the patience to do it. You can forge your own pan from a block of steel, you know, but it's not really recommended these days. So what I wanted to figure out is how do we automate that and find a, a machine method to replicate wrought iron, making a one-piece wrought iron pan. And I found the method, and I've been thinking about it for 20 years at that point or more because the chefs were always asking me this. So I knew there'd be something in it if I could get it fixed, you know. Uh, this could be a popular thing. So I found the, the method and patented it and then found the contract manufacturer in Australia on one of my trips back, and we did it. We, we made the samples, a bit like Fury all over again. Everyone loved the samples, so we said, all right, uh, let's do it. It's been a, a pretty rapid rise since then. And that's with the wrought iron. And then people said, hey, all right, you, you did it in iron, uh, but you won't be able to do it in stainless because stainless steel doesn't conduct heat. Um, that's why it's got layers of, you know, the, the famous brands, the clad materials. They've got layers of aluminium or copper or something to help them conduct the heat because the stainless steel they're using is a really bad conductor. So anyway, I, I did my research and went in a direction that I suspected and found a material that conducts better than the best brands using all those clad materials in solid one piece. But you were creating this new business model, but then you went back to Fury. Was it around the same time? Around the same time, yeah. Both things were happening at the same time because Fury had changed hands three times. I sold it to a private equity firm in the USA they took three years to destroy that, plus the five other um, brands they'd acquired. And they went Chapter 11 first, then Chapter 7, so they were bankrupt. So one of their management team bought the Fury stuff. I didn't want it back. It was, they did so much damage by changing everything. You know, mm -hmm. They still had a shiny-looking knife, but nothing like a real knife. And anyway, one of the management team bought it, tried to do it, on his own steam and unfortunately he lost everything and then an Australian company bought the wreckage 
and they knew me so they said hey why don't you come back under contract and help us fix this because the retailers still want it they just they don't want it now unless we fix it and so i did i went back for a couple of years two or three years and part-time i mean i was still working still living in france and still working on my own thing but i helped them by going back to my original specifications and remaking the Fury knives in the original and, and at least as good, if not better, than the original. So they're back to number one in Australia. They're still, there again, the biggest selling knife to, yeah, they're largely home cooks, but the chefs still buy them too because they're, they're somewhat of a, a classic. They just work. Interesting thing is I knew there was more potential in knives and if we did something that was really purist, you know, I spent some time in Japan forging knives too and sharpening knives, and that's what I wanted to do. Chisel edge, you know, single bevel knives, and that's what we've just done for solid techniques and made in Australia, like our cookware made in Sydney from Australian materials, the iron cookware. We're the only Australian manufacturer of cookware. Isn't that just something to be so proud of? Yeah, it is. And kind of a bit sad as well hmm. that we are. I'm interested that you've you've shown the world that it can be done, but no one else has sort of come in on your coattails to pick up, um, you know, to, to challenge you in that space or, or to try and uh, take over some market share in that space. Why do you think that is? Because it's way harder than it looks. Yeah. <laughs> it's often the way, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, if it was easy, it would have been done, but it's not easy. But you know what we do see pop up on Facebook, and it's a, it's a, I've seen a lot over the years, it's Australian importers of offshore cheap things that put a lot of Australian branding all over it, you know, Australian-owned, Australian family business, but they're really just getting a generic product from the Hong Kong houseware show or the Canton Fair, and they're rebadging it with very slick marketing and putting these enormous margins on it. I saw one the other day was just a generic, you know, you go to Aldi and there's enamel-coated cast iron cookware. They have specials every now and then for 25 bucks, you know. Mm -hmm. You get oven for 25 bucks uh, because that's how cheap they are to make. Even less than that, they're making their margin, of course. I saw one the other day, $250 for basically the same thing from the same offshore country, uh, but with a slick marketing campaign with lots of Australian-owned and Australian-designed and all this stuff. And it really is just a generic product like everyone else's. So we're seeing that pop up a lot. But if you really want to own and patent something rather than just do a little marketing campaign that may or may not stick around, you've got to own the patents. Mm. And to own the patents takes some serious innovation, you know, like we found a whole new way to make pans. Then with the knives, we found our Solidity knives, our Solid Techniques knives, we found a whole new way to make knives so we could make them in Australia. Because if we made what everyone else is making offshore, there's no chance. You've got no chance if you're manufacturing in Australia with Australian labour costs, Australian material costs, and ethical treatment of workers it's why it's so important, isn't it, to when you see Australian-owned or Australian branding on something, you really do need to ask questions and scratch a little bit below the surface and know the story of that product or produce. Yeah, and they, they do fool a lot of people. It's technically illegal to, to bluff people into thinking that it's from Australia when it's not. But yeah. you know, there's a lot of getting away with it for now. 
You, you see that in textiles, but you see it in food as well. Yeah, percentages of mm-hmm. inputs and stuff. Yeah, and you look at it, it's like 10% Australian, you know, and you just yeah. you see the colors and you just assume it's 100%, and then you go, oh, it's missing a zero. Yeah, and they, they just uh, bank on most people don't have the time to do the research, so they're going to accept it at face value. And can you tell us a little bit more about what's involved in patenting something? Well, it used to be simple. Yeah, and it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money because uh, the, the tests that the, um, you know, we start uh, with the USPTO, the United States uh, Patent and Trademark Office, because our, our IP lawyers in New York, we've been with the same guys for, I've been with the same guys for over 20 years. They do a really good job, and they've saved my butt quite a few times when we've had issues with copycats and things over the years, all the way back with Fury, actually, and now with Solid Technics. You've got to come up with something so unique that the Patent and Trademark Office, when they do their prior art search, like they go back and search through a lot of prior patents that are related, and they go through it with an absolute fine-tooth comb. They really know their stuff in terms of the legal side of it. Uh, sometimes you've got to school them a bit on the engineering side because, by definition, if you're doing something brand new, they might not, not really understand what you're doing anyway, even though, yeah, that's what they're meant to do. But they usually come around if you say, hey, yeah, but did you think about this? We really are doing something that no one else thought of because of this and this. They go, oh, yeah, you're right. See, because if you're doing something so... Uh, new and different, it can take even those experts a while to get their head around it. Long story short, you pay a lot of money for the lawyers, you pay a lot of money for the registrations in each of the uh, countries that you want to protect because what we do, we register our trademarks in China, but we don't register our patents in China because we know it's completely futile. You're not going to go there and take a Chinese company to court for copying your product and exporting it overseas. <laughs> you know, it's just a waste of time. But we register our patents in all the countries that we want to develop a market in. So, you know, we export some pretty serious volumes to Korea, Japan, the UK, USA, of course. And uh, so that's where we hold all our patents in Australia, of course. What you do is, if you hold the patents in those countries, you don't worry about where the product came from. You go and sue the importer um, because it's their responsibility to not infringe something that's already patented. And um, that's way simpler than, than suing the Chinese factories. has saved our butt quite a few times. So where do you see the Solitechnic range? Because you, you keep evolving and you keep pushing the, the envelope with it. I mean, you've, you've gone through quite a few different stages of that process, and now you've just launched. Is it quenched? Yeah. Oh, you've done your research, Tonya. That's parented I, I actually, yes, and I actually have one, and I've um, been cooking with it all week, yeah. So how'd it go? Yeah. Well, you're still importing me for the interview, so it must have been okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. Well, every pan yeah. that we've used, we've used them a lot on our tours. We've cooked over open fires. We've oh, cooked in the, the middle yeah. of fields. We've served food on a pink lake. Well, we've been we've been using the skillets and the flaming skillets in particular um, for I don't know how long, Mark, eight years, something like that. 
Yeah, yeah, you're one of the early adopters, mm-hmm. and they're indestructible. You found you can throw them in the fire, you can leave them out wet. They turn yeah. rusty. You scrub them, re-season them, keep going. We've had a few yeah. um, Qantas and Virgin baggage weight issues <laughs> okay, as a result yeah. of them. <laughs> we tend to carry them in our luggage. Well, we have to carry them in our luggage because we take them to pretty uh, remote places. remote places. So we've had some funny airport incidences with them. But yeah, they they been... won't be happy in the light planes, the small planes. <laughs> no, but they have been amazing. They really they are indestructible. Like you said, they've just been incredible to use in all different situations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the outdoor cooking. The outdoor cooks, the, the or the um, the fire pit cooks of Australia have really loved them because of the indestructibility, the the conductivity of our wrought iron is way better than cast iron, say something that was reasonably indestructible before we came along. Ours are way more indestructible because they'll never crack, like cast iron. Mm. I mean, I must say, we look after them. So we dry them well. We put them in the cloth bags after every trip, and then we store them properly, which, you know, is is advised. Yeah, yeah, that helps. And and the quench, the the main difference there is we actually invented a whole new way to season pans instantly by quenching a very hot pan into a vat of the right type of oil at the right temperature. It instantly creates a fantastic natural seasoning, just like you would build up seasoning in a cast um, iron skillet. In a cast iron skillet, that we do it instantly, and with very little pollution, so uh, and low energy input. So we patented that as well. Yeah, and the quinstrons. I mean, they clean much easier too, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's a great, a great finish they end up with because of that high temperature quenching. Well, just so you know, I've made brownies, I've fried halloumi, and I've cooked fish in my <laughs> in my quenched. And uh, yeah. yeah, so it's yeah, really, really a good piece of kit. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And but you know that's that sort of innovation with um, with the quenched has been great. The other thing we're doing a lot of is uh, a lot more knife models. So a lot in knives, we're doing a lot more hand tools. So you know we've got just innovative type and very heavy duty turners and scrapers and things like that. And now it's a shame the video doesn't work for the interview, but that's um, the solid techniques tongs in one piece of three millimeter ferritic stainless steel. And we're making them also in solid titanium. Oh, wow. Well, we'll have to put a link in the show notes for people that can't see, can't see the screen that we can see. (laughs) I don't know if I've mentioned to you, but my brother in LA, and he'll probably listen to this podcast, but he is a huge Solitechnics fan. And he has, I think he's purchased every single skillet on the market in the States. And and one day I was talking to him and he's like, sis, you really should, you should check these out. And I'm like, I know Mark, I know all about him. And he's like, no way, you know. And yeah, they've held that he, he uses them inside, outside his outdoor kitchen. He's just all over it. So uh, it's really exciting to see this Australian made, you know, range available, you know, in Europe and in the States and doing so well and having such a wonderful reputation. I've got a question for you about that. You've lived overseas, you've lived in, you know, the States and France, you said, what do you think it is about Australians and entrepreneurism, what, what do you think drives that? Do you think there's a certain characteristic that you've you've seen from living overseas? Yeah, I think there's a few things. 
Yeah, like like the Kiwis, the Kiwis per capita are some of the most inventive on earth, Australians up there as well. And it's got a lot to do with distance. So in the old days, and it's reducing over time, in the old days, you couldn't buy something. You had to make it a lot of the time in places like Australia. And it's still going on in yeah more remote countries with with less uh, retail shopping or internet, you know, they're still inventing things um, because they have to, because they can't get them easily. Mm. So that's part of it in the old days. That gave us that spirit of being able to solve problems ourselves on the spot. You mentioned earlier about going full circle and now you're living on the farm. So on the property, are you forging knives and and on, on the property or what are you doing up there? Yeah, yeah. Well, we are forging knives, but for now it's prototyping knives. So our our shed out the back is um, also our prototyping workshop. So a lot of new things I hand make there and test them myself. And, you know, or features of new things that I want the manufacturer to then make a really good prototype of using the right machines and things. But I can get a fair bit done up in the shed uh to get to that point where we want to spend the money to make prototypes, manufacture prototypes, because they're expensive, you know. So forging, we've got a forge, we've got the anvils, we've got the forges, we've got um, uh, all the equipment to forge knives. It's just that we don't want to go into production up there. So, yeah, the staff come around, we have conferences here and uh, retreats, and they start forging knives. We're working on knives so the staff can have their own knives, you know. So what livestock do you have up there? We've got Brangus cattle mainly, and um, they're, they're a beef breed, but we're breeders, so they're high-quality animals. And we've got a lot of little calves popping out. We've got calves everywhere. So we'll sell them as cow-calf pairs, um, as, uh, and a lot of those will be breeders again because of the good bloodlines. Uh, we've got those. We've got 200 plus chooks in a chicken caravan. They they run around the pasture all day and then they get in the chicken caravan before the automatic door shuts at night <laughs> because <laughs> we got we got a lot of wild wild foxes? dogs in the area. Oh, okay. We've got foxes, dingoes, and the mixed breed wild dogs are probably the worst. They do a lot of damage. And in fact, we've got two donkeys that run with the calves to protect the calves from the dogs. Ah, oh, well, I tell you, I'm, great. Lucy and I've spoken to you earlier about perhaps a, a future straight to the source chef's tour to the farm, and um, uh, we would like very much to do that. So watch this space with regards to that, yeah? We'd love to. We're gearing up for that sort of thing, to have you know the accommodation, to have the workshop set up for forging things. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's entirely possible for someone to come up and forge one of our knife blanks themselves. So if we put on the calendar a straight to the source chef's tour and and we we make that happen, we may just leave our skillets behind and rely on yours. Is that all right? Yeah, we've got a few to spare, you could say. And we've got interesting stuff that no one's seen. Uh, I cook with all the prototypes. I don't get to have new stuff. I just cook with the rat bag prototypes. Awesome. Let's do that. Maybe we can develop a straight to the source pan. Oh, imagine that. It actually is possible to customize certain things in the pans. We did it for Japan. 
they wanted their own logo and co-brand with us. So we uh, customised slightly the handle for our Japanese distributor. Oh, well, watch this space then. Going straight to the source. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just wanted to mention, apart from the solid techniques things we get up to here, it is a lot to do with regeneration, so building a food forest, a sustainable food forest, a permaculture food forest, all mostly it's all perennial. So instead of tilling and planting and reaping, you design it well once, plant everything out that's mostly perennial, and then you forage and you harvest, but the, all the plants keep living. So... It's a bit like what Morag Gamble does up here in Queensland. There's a few others, lots of others around the world, of course. I think uh, perennial food forests are really the way of the future because they avoid that open-till farming and they just remain uh, productive without chemical inputs is the important thing. You don't use herbicides because you've got the companion planting that distracts the insects You've got the birds that get the insects. You've got everything really closer to in harmony and in balance. I think regeneration is a word that people are becoming more and more familiar with and learning more about, and it's definitely the way of the future. But what I'd love to know is you mentioned about you wrote your manifesto and how has that played out? Has it played out the way you envisaged when you wrote it? And, and was it your vision to be back on a farm farming the way that you are now? Yeah, all of that. And... Uh, the thing with the manifesto, I think if I hadn't taken the time, I knew it was important, that's why I put in the time. If I hadn't uh, written it down in black and white, I might have started to change some of the ideas and lost maybe sight of the big picture, the vision that to leave a non-monetary legacy for the people. And what it is, these products, people laugh when I say our warranty is multi-century, but it's pretty obvious they're going to go on for many centuries. So that's kind of a product legacy. People are going to see that this was made right way back in ancient early 2000s and things, and it's going to be surprising in 500 years' time when it's still cooking the same. That's one thing. We've knocked out a lot of toxic products in the industry. You know, the old habit of buying synthetic-coated pans and throwing them in the landfill six months later or a year later, We've really broken that cycle. We've sold so many pans that people now have for the rest of their lives. They're never going to buy another synthetic pan again, particularly when they find out how toxic they are. It's an investment now for the rest of their life. They never buy another toxic pan, another disposable pan. Then they hand it on for another 10 or 20 generations, whatever it's going to be, and they're getting free cookware that basically had no input when you spread it over 500 years, it's basically a free pan like it was. It came from thin air, you know? And it comes with a legacy and a story and a history. It's an heirloom piece. Heirloom for the family, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of people are talking like that now. But anyway, and then you can apply that to, well, one of the regeneration things is we can regenerate that lost part of Australian manufacturing by showing um, other manufacturers in Australia that this is entirely possible if they can innovate well enough to protect what they've made, then manufacture it reasonably economically, they'll find their niche, they'll find the customers and they'll survive. And that's what we're trying to prove. Then with the farming, trying to uh, 
prove that it can be done without all the chemical inputs. Non-monetary legacy, that's, that's what drove me uh, this second time around, and that was written out in great detail. And uh, I've stuck with the plan because, yeah, the detail's not that important. It's the vision. An amazing vision me. as well. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's not easy, but it's worthwhile, as they say. Uh, the world, the world's a better place for the the way that you're operating and the way that you're consciously and mindfully developing products in a range that that will go on and the legacy will go on and it just won't go into landfill. Yeah, thanks, Tonya. Yeah, a lot of people. We just hope to inspire people who can take it further and do more, do it bigger. You know. Oh, that's that's awesome. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for for the work you you're doing and for sharing with us and spending time with us today. It's really been insightful and and although we you know, we felt like we we know you and we followed your journey, you you just there's many layers to you, Mark. Uh there's more than meets the eye. We didn't even get into the sports and hobbies <laughs> well maybe we'll have to get you back for another another chat but it's an incredibly inspiring story and i one that i think you know people will really enjoy hearing and in in the show notes we will put links and everything to your website to solid techniques and to the details on how to contact you we will continue the conversation with the future straight to the source chef's tour up to your farm yeah thank you you're absolutely welcome of course of the a real pleasure to show you guys around and and show you uh, what we're trying to achieve at least. We look forward to it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes. We have some extraordinary guests lined up and we'd love for you to join us again. Please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd love feedback, good or bad, or perhaps a guest you'd love to hear from. Please just let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to, and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of our Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.